Hey, it's Rochelle, and you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a production of Catholic Answers. Welcome to the place to transform the world by transforming yourself. Well, happy Lent, everyone. If you're listening right now, congratulations. Why? Because you fasted on either Monday or on Wednesday, depending on which Catholic rite you belong to, and you didn't die. Even though there might have been a moment there when you thought you just might die, you didn't. You survived. And now we are all safely in the desert. And I love that imagery of the desert for Lent. And to commemorate our safe arrival here, I want to talk about the Exodus. But I don't want to go to the Old Testament per se. I want to look, well, we'll reference the Old Testament. I want to look at the Exodus in the Gospel of John, right? We're going to see a new Exodus. Now, two weeks ago, we had an episode, Genesis of the Gospel of John. And how exciting was it to see all of those threads from the creation accounts woven through the prologue of John's Gospel to show that the Lord has come to make a new creation. Like, I love that. But you know what else John did in his prologue? He also has shown us that Jesus has come to bring us a new exodus. And it's right there in front of our eyes, and we just haven't seen it. But if you were a devout Jew, the time that John wrote this gospel and you read it, you would have seen not only all of the references from Genesis 1, you definitely would have seen and picked up on the Exodus references. Now, just like John tells us that Jesus brought us new creation, John is telling us that Jesus has brought us into a new Exodus. All right. So, There's going to be a number of ways in which he does that. So let's just run through them real quickly. Um, I'm going to give you some terms, then we're going to go back and look at them. So first is Jesus um, dwelling among us. Also, we're going to look at glory, grace, and truth. We're going to look at the prophet, the Lamb of God, Nazareth, and we are even going to look at the six stone jars that... Jesus used to turn water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. All right. Now, these little terms are things that we're going to learn today. But after that, they're just going to like scream out at us every time that we read the gospel of John from here on out. So let's look first at where John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is in verse 14. Now, verse 14 There's more to it than that, and I've always just kind of overlooked it because, I mean, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and I'm just like, woohoo, and I just kind of stop paying attention. Um, But also in that verse, it continues to say, full of grace and truth, we have beheld his glory, glory as of only Son from the Father. The Hebrew word for dwelt among us is skene, which when you translate it, it literally means tabernacle. So the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, right? It pitched a tent and dwelt among us, right? It pitched a tent and was in our midst, better way to say it. Now, this is going to hearken us back to the Exodus, right? When God dwelt among his people in a tabernacle as they wandered through the wilderness, right? The fiery cloud that hovered over them, while they were 
you know, roaming around the desert, would stop when they would camp and it would hover over the tent of meeting. And this cloud was called the cloud of glory. So it would hover over the tent of meeting and the Lord would dwell inside that tent. And Moses was allowed to go into that tent. But see, the Jewish reader would read this and say that, of course, the Lord dwelt among his people. You know, he did that during the Exodus and then later in the temple. Um, But to say that the word became flesh and is dwelling among us, that's a big deal. That's a big sign right there. And so when it comes to glory, that was another thing I wanted to pick up um, on in that same verse. That's the glory that I was just talking about, about the glory of God that would hover over the cloud of glory that would hover over the tent of meeting, right? And the glory of God would be inside of that tent. And Moses was allowed to go into the tent and be in the presence of the glory of God. But everyone outside of that tent, all the other Israelites, none of them were allowed in. And so the glory of God was veiled by that tent. This is something that in history, we'll later see in the temple, right? Because the Lord dwelled in the Holy of Holies in the temple. But what was in between the Holy of Holies and the people? The veil, right? So no one was able to behold the Lord's glory in the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest. And the same was true of Moses. No one else in the camp was able to see the Lord's glory except for Moses, because it was veiled. And so John here is saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But see, he's, it's very subtle, but he's saying that the flesh is veiling God's glory, right? The humanity of Jesus is veiling the glory of God that's within him unless he decides to perform some sort of a miraculous sign, which he does, right? Now, moving on to grace and truth. John is going to use this phrase again in verse 17 of chapter 1, and it's going to hearken us back to Exodus. But the thing is, in Exodus, we don't see this phrase used per se as grace and truth, but we do see it as mercy and faithfulness. And this mercy and faithfulness is a dominant theme during the Exodus. And I think a prime example of this is, I think, I want to say it's chapter 34, Don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. Um, At any rate, it's the moment when Moses goes back up to the top of Mount Sinai so that he can get the second set of Ten Commandment tablets. Remember that? He goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, comes back down with the Ten Commandments, and he just witnesses the Israelites just down there being dumb, you know, worshiping a golden calf and all that. Um, He smashes them, so he needs to get new ones. So he goes back up to the top, talks to the Lord, and in their conversation, basically Moses is pleading on behalf of the Israelite people, and since he is vouching for them, the Lord decides to renew the covenant that he made with them, and so Moses then gets the second set of Ten Commandment tablets. And this mercy and this faithfulness that we see on behalf of the Lord during this encounter um, with Moses is going to be renewed by Jesus, but we're going to see it in the form of grace and truth. Also, John the Evangelist mentions the prophet. Now, he does this in a way that we might not 
see it, right? So here it is. In verse 21, John the Baptist is being questioned by some men who were sent by the Pharisees, wondering what he's doing. You know, they're hearing about this man who's baptizing and all this stuff, and they want to know who he is and what he thinks he's doing. And so when they go to question him, they ask him, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And when you read that, you might just think it might just be clunky language because sometimes we get that in scriptures. But no, it was very deliberate. They were actually legitimately asking if he was the prophet, if he was the Messiah. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses foretells of a prophet that's going to come after him. It's going to be a prophet like him, right? And from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, there's a number of prophets, right? But none of them are called the prophet, right? So it's obvious that these men are awaiting a specific someone, right? So that means all of Israel is all of Israel is expecting a specific person, right? A specific prophet to come. And so throughout history, this the prophet is synonymous with the Messiah. And so it's obvious that the people are awaiting this person, this Messiah, and they think that it's John. But we know that it's not John, but it's actually going to be Jesus. But John is putting that out there, that little detail, just so that we know that we should be looking also for this, the prophet. And we're going to find him, right, in Jesus. Now later, John the Baptist also proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God when he sees him approaching. And I think this is pretty obvious for most of us because we know that the Lamb of God was prefigured by the Passover, the Passover of the Hebrew people. And the Passover came into existence because Moses was trying to get Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go out into the wilderness and worship, and he wouldn't. And so Moses had to bring upon the nine plagues onto Egypt. And the last of those plagues was the slaying of the firstborn son, unless you, you know, had this Passover sacrifice, which all the Jewish people, you know, they learned how to do it. And they put the blood of the lamb around their door and their firstborns were saved and spared, right? Now that blood, that blood of that lamb, that lamb that had to be without blemish, it had to be cooked or roasted, I think specifically. And then everyone had to partake of that lamb. They had to eat it, right? But the blood of that lamb had to be um, wiped around the doorposts of their house. That blood provided divine protection, right? And this is a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus that's going to provide divine protection. And protection against what? Protection against death, right? At the time of the Passover, it was the um, the death of the from the angel of death that was coming over Egypt. But for us, it's death from sin, right? So it's eternal death. We are provided with divine protection from eternal death or eternal damnation. In our episode on Genesis in the Gospel of John, I mentioned this exchange between Nathaniel and Jesus, right? But I didn't really go into too much detail. So right now we're going to look at that a little bit more closely because yes, there is a Genesis connection there, but before there's a Genesis connection, there's an Exodus connection. So Philip goes to Nathaniel and he's like, dude, I found the guy who Moses and the prophets have been talking about. You need to come meet him. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's a little snarky and he's like, 
what good could come out of Nazareth? And you don't really notice that. It seems like it's kind of like a throwaway, snarky comment. But it's not because we've seen how meticulous John has been when writing this first section of his gospel. So it's not there for nothing. John is drawing his listeners' attention back to a prophecy by Isaiah. Now, this prophecy has to do with the stump of Jesse. Now, the prophecy goes like this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, right? And this is a prophecy of the peaceful kingdom that will come, so like the Messiah that will come. Now, what does this have to do with Nazareth? Well, glad you asked, because Nazareth, in Hebrew, the word is Netzer, which literally translated means branch. And this prophecy says that from the stump of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of its roots, right? They're referring to Jesus coming out of Nazareth, right? The Messiah will come from Nazareth. We also have connections with the branch in an oracle by Zechariah, which says that the Lord is going to, he, the Lord says, I'm going to send my servant, the branch, and he's going to remove all sin in one day, right? And who does that? Jesus, he comes and removes all sin from the world through his passion, death, and resurrection. And the last thing I want to talk about is turning water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. And Jesus is not the first person in scripture to turn water into something. Moses turns the water of the Nile into blood during the first plague that the Lord looses on Egypt. Now, I think that's a pretty cool connection, but that's not really what I want to focus on here. What I want to focus on is the fact that at the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus picks these six stone jars that are already, you know, chilling out there, ready to go. And why? Because those stone jars are full of water for purification. Any Jew is going to know this. They're not going to think that this is drinking water. You know what I mean? Now, Water used for purification is something that we can find back in the book of Numbers, and it has to do with this ritual purification, especially when you touched someone who was dead, because then you became defiled, and you were defiled for seven days. Therefore, you needed to be cleansed with water on the third day and on the seventh day. And why were you considered defiled if you touched someone who was dead? Because the Jewish people knew that death was something that we inherited because of the fact that we were fallen human beings. Undergoing this ritual cleansing was an outward sign acknowledging that because of sin, we now must die. In this prescription of what to do if you've touched a dead body and are defiled, remember it says that you have to cleanse yourself on the third day and on the seventh day. And it's really interesting that in 
John's gospel, you know how he goes through the next day, the next day, the next day, and then he says, and then in three days, right? And so that gives us the seventh day. We covered that two episodes ago in the Genesis and John the gospel episode. But that third day, right? That third day from the fourth day is the seventh day. Like that's simple math. But the way that John words it, it's the third day, but we also know it's the seventh day. And so Jesus is taking that water used for uh, ritual uh, purification and it's the third day, but it's also the seventh day. And he's turning that water into wine, that water that would be used to purify someone. It's now being turned into wine that's going to purify us, not just externally, but internally. It's going to purify our souls because we know that Jesus came to take away the disease of sin, which causes spiritual death and defilement. And this wine that he creates out of purification water will later on at the Last Supper be turned into his blood at his Passover sacrifice, which we as Catholics will be able to partake in every time we participate in the divine liturgy. You know, as scripture says, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? John totally perceives it. He totally just like blows my mind the way he's just compacted everything together so closely knit. And John is reminding us that Genesis, the Lord brought people and the world into existence. In the Exodus, he brought the people of God into existence. And what makes these Hebrew people the people of God, besides the fact that they are descendants of Abraham? Well, it's the fact that when Moses went to Pharaoh originally, what did he ask him? He asked him to let the Hebrew people go off into the wilderness to worship, right? He didn't originally go to Pharaoh and say, free all of the slaves. No, he wanted them to be able to go into the wilderness so that they could worship the Lord. And that's because Hebrew sacrifices, sacrificed animals that the Egyptians considered gods. Right. And so that wouldn't have gone over very well. Right. If the Hebrew people started worshiping there um, amongst the Egyptians and they're sacrificing these animals that the that the Egyptians think are gods. Right. That just would have just been really bad and really ugly for everyone involved. So the Lord was like, all right, Moses, ask for my people to come out into the wilderness where they can sacrifice and worship me. Right. So that is the distinguishing key that makes people, the people of God, is their worship, their worship of God. And remember that John is telling us that Jesus came to do something new, right? A new creation and a new exodus. And the exodus was about God forming the people of God and people of God were made to worship. And so Jesus is bringing us a new way of worship, right? And as Catholics, we can look at at this in the light of what we know about the Lord, his passion, death, and resurrection, and the Last Supper. And we know that that worship is coming to its highest point in the Mass, in the Divine Liturgy, through Jesus's body and blood. Now, the Hebrews were called out into the desert to worship for logical reasons. And us 
Today, in 2019, this Lenten season, we're called out into the desert to worship, but not for the same reasons. Um, There are, however, great spiritual benefits that can be found when we are in the desert during Lent. And you hear that, and you might be one of those people that associates the desert with being barren and dry and lonely and maybe even like tough or grueling, right? And you can't see that there's anything positive about it. And so for that reason, you might go into Lent with the same mindset and it just might be a great drudgery for you. But from our perspective, knowing what we know about John's gospel, right? How Jesus has come to do something new and we've seen this new creation. And today we've gone over this new exodus that the Lord has ushered us into and what the people of God were called to do in the wilderness, in the desert, we can associate that with our spiritual lives this Lent. And we'll be able to, during this great fast, see the desert as a place of flourishing in the spiritual life, a place of satisfying the deep longings of our souls while we're out in the desert with the Lord. And that's because In the desert, we can find intimate relationship with him. There's nothing standing in our way. It's just us and him and all of the graces that he wants to give us. Okay, I hope that you are excited to dive back into this gospel with me this week. Um, Go back and reread that prologue and you're going to see everything that we pointed out in our Genesis episode and uh, in today's Exodus episode. And it's really, and you know, now that you know that, it's really going to um, pique your, your spiritual senses. And while you are reading the Bible, pray with it. Pray with it and see what the Lord is trying to do in your spiritual life this Lent with regard to new creation and a new exodus. Okay, it's time for me to go, but before I do, please subscribe to this podcast if you have not subscribed yet. It's available where all good podcasts are found. And tell your friends because we need more people listening to Clumsy Theosis because we need more people out there in the world transforming it by the love of God, because they are transforming themselves through what they're learning and how they are applying it to their spiritual lives to be on fire for the gospel. And I love to hear from you. I really do. So follow me on Instagram at Clumsy Theosis. You can private message me there. You can comment there. Everyone that has messaged me, I'm pretty sure I've answered their messages. Um, I want to know where you are in your spiritual life, what I can do for you, and what other things that you'd like to learn about or yeah get better at in this life as a catholic all right everybody peace out thank you for tuning in this week to clumsy theosis each week we explore a topic within the catholic faith to aid listeners like yourself as well as yours truly in the advancement and deepening of the spiritual life and the personal ownership of our relationship with the big guy upstairs and his church As cliche as it sounds, the world needs you. Become who you were created to be with Clumsy Theosis, the place to transform the world by transforming yourself.